Chapter One of Trading Jeff and His Dog. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kristen Lewis, Houston, Texas. Trading Jeff and His Dog by Jim Kilgard. Chapter One The Meeting. When the dog came to the weed-grown border of the clearing, he stopped. Then, knowing that his back could be seen over the weeds, he slunk down so that his belly scraped the earth. He was tense and quivering, and his eyes bore a haunted look. But there was nothing craven in them, and little fear. In all his life the dog had never feared anything except the terrible torment that beset him now. He was of no recognizable breed though all of his ancestors had been large dogs. There was a hint of staghound in his massive head and in his carriage, and somewhere along the way he had acquired a trace of Great Dane. His fur was silky like a collie's, and there was a suggestion of bloodhound in his somewhat flabby jowls. Without purpose or plan, the blood of all these breeds had mingled to produce this big mongrel. He was so emaciated that slatted ribs showed, even through his burr-matted fur. Had he eaten as much as he wanted, he would have weighed about a hundred and ten pounds. But he had had so little food recently that he was fifteen pounds lighter. Intelligence glowed in his eyes, but there was also something in them that verged on desperation. He moved only his head and moved that slowly. This dog knew too much and had suffered too much to let himself be seen, until he had some idea of what he was about. He was looking toward a big white farmhouse that was surrounded by a grove of apple trees. A thin plume of blue smoke rose from the chimney, and a pile of freshly split wood lay in the yard. Busy white hens wandered about, white and black cows, and two brown horses chopped grass in a pasture. Pigs grunted in their pen, and a black cat sunned himself on the doorstep. The dog's attention returned to the man who was splitting more wood. He was thin, dressed in faded blue jeans and a tan shirt, and blows of his axe echoed dully from the hills surrounding the farmhouse. He worked slowly and methodically. The dog drank eagerly of his scent, although he did not leave his cover, for behind him there was only a trail of torment, abuse, and real danger. He had been wandering for two months, and his path was a long one. But because it was also a twisted one, it had not taken him too far from the place he had left. He had been in villages and towns, through farmlands and forest, and whenever he met men, he had been stoned or clubbed, three times, twice by farmers, and once by a policeman. He had been shot at. The dog could not know that this was partly because of his appearance and size. He was big, and he looked wild. Had he cared to do so, he could have killed a man. But what none of his tormentors could know was that, though the dog feared little, he was almost incapable of attacking a human being. What nobody could know either was that most of all the dog was in desperate need of someone to love. Until two months ago, everything had been different. When the dog came to live with Johnny Blazer in the hills behind Smithville, he was so young that it always seemed he must have begun life with Johnny. It was a good life, and he had never wanted any other. Johnny's cabin was big, with a kitchen and combined living dining room on the first floor, 
and the entire second floor given over to many bunks. It was necessary to have a big cabin, because, in season, Johnny both guided and boarded hunters and fishermen. During the winter he trapped furs, and when there was nothing else to do, he worked at odd jobs, or searched out and sowed medicinal roots, which he found in the hills. A lean, tight-jawed woodsman in his late thirties, Johnny had been the dog's revered master. Because he was a dog, and thus incapable of grasping the more complex facts, the great animal did not understand that life was not the woolly, carefree, and happy one it seemed. He could sense that Johnny avoided the Whitneys, who at various places in the hills lived much as Johnny did, because they were Johnny's enemies, it followed that the Whitneys must be the dog's enemies too. But he never understood what took place. Johnny and the dog were strolling towards Smithville when a rifle cracked and Johnny took three staggering steps to fall forward. While the dog hovered anxiously near, his master tried and failed to get up. The dog knew that the scent of Pete Whitley filled the air, but there was no connection between Pete and the fact that Johnny Blazer lay wounded in the road. For an hour the dog worried beside Johnny, whining because he could not help. Then a car happened along. The two men in it lifted Johnny into the car and were off at high speed. The dog tried to follow, but though he could run very fast, he could not keep up with the car. Out distance, he panted back to the cabin, because he was sure that Johnny would return there, too. He waited a week, never venturing far away and eating only what he could find or catch. Then he set out to look for Johnny. He had gone first to Smithville, and the first person he had met there was Pete Whitney. The dog slowed to a walk, watching Pete warily and bristling. He saw no connection between any of Pete's actions and Johnny's disappearance, but all the Whitneys were enemies. He leaped aside when Pete aimed a swift kick at his groin, then turned with bared fangs. Unarmed, Pete shrank back against a nearby building, and the dog went on. The alarm was sounded. Johnny Blazer's dog had come into town and threatened a person. For a while, Johnny had many friends in Smithville. Nothing was done. But after two days, the dog was considered a menace. Mothers of small children became concerned for their safety. The first act of most men, upon seeing the dog, was to pick up and hurl any convenient missile. The Smithville constable, Bill Ellis, reluctantly set out to kill the animal. But two hours earlier, having satisfied himself that he could not find Johnny in Smithville, the dog had left. What he could not possibly know was that his master was dead, and the official cause of his death was bullet wound inflicted by a person or persons unknown. As the dog wandered, hope faded. He could not find Johnny. But the dog had to have a master because he was unable to live without one. And now, as he lay in the tall weeds, all the deep yearnings in his heart concentrated on this man's splitting wood. He half rose, minded to walk out and meet him, but memory of the rocks and clubs that had come his way was not an easy one to banish, and he settled down in the weeds again. Then an uncontrollable longing for someone to love, and someone to love him, overcame everything else, and he left the weeds. He walked, with his tail drooping in a half-circle down his rear, but he was not object because it was not in him to be so. 
one or more of his many ancestors had bequeathed to him a great pride and a regal inner sense and though he would run when a club or brick were hurled at him he could never cringe he carried his tail low because that was the way he had carried it naturally like a collie or a staghound the man setting a chunk of wood against the splitting block had his back turned to the dog and did not at once see him the dog waited unwilling to intrude until he was invited to do so the man raised his axe brought it expertly down and the wood split cleanly he stooped to pick up the two pieces and when he did he saw the dog you catching up one of the chunks he hurled it with deadly aim and intent but even as he did this the huge animal started to run so that instead of striking him in the head the chunk of wood struck his right shoulder the dog felt quick agony that subsided to searing pain as he kept running twenty seconds later he heard a rifle blast and the thump of a leaden slug that plowed into the earth six inches to one side the rifle roared a second time and a third then he was safe in the woods he slowed to a walk knowing that he could not be seen now and his nose informed him that there were no other men around for the time being he was in no danger but he was heartsick again he had tried in every way he knew to find someone whom he might love and who in turn might love him once more his overtures had brought him only hurt the dog could not know that the farmer seeing him suddenly had been too startled to think when he was finally capable of coherent thought he decided that a wild dangerous and doubtless rabid wolf had emerged from the forest and that its only intention could be to prey upon the locality's flocks and herds failing to bring it down with his rifle the farmer got hastily on the phone to mobilize his neighbors within half an hour a posse was out however its members were not farmers and not hunters the only hunting dogs in the area were a few fox and coon hounds and some rapid hounds and they refused to interest themselves in the supposed wolf's trail but there was also a pair of big crossbred brindle bulls and they were urged into the woods an hour later the dog met this pair coursing a little open glade they appeared in front of him and as soon as they saw him they stopped the bulls weighed only about fifty pounds each but they had had many battles and they knew how to fight Lifting their lips in anticipatory grins, they closed in. The dog waited, anger rising in his heart. He too knew how to fight. For the barest fraction of a minute, he gauged the bull's advance. Then he attacked. He was not as swift as he ordinarily was because he had not eaten enough. But with his stag hound and collie lineage, he had inherited all the fluid, rippling grace of such dogs it was not his way to bore in, to seek a hold and keep it, but to slash and slice. He struck the first bull, cut it to the shoulder bone, and leaped clear over his enemy before there could be a return thrush. He twirled to face the second. It came at him with short, choppy gait, eyes half closed and a mouth open as it sought any hold at all. As soon as it was able to get one, it would clamp its jaws and grind until a piece of flesh in its mouth was torn out then it would get another hold and another literally tear its enemy apart 
The dog waited as though he were about to meet the bull head on. But when only inches separated them, he glided to one side, ducked to get a hold of a front leg, and used all of his strength to throw the bull clear over his head. He turned to meet the second bull that, recovering, had come in to grab his thigh. Twisting himself almost double, the dog slashed and bit, and each time he slashed, fresh blood squirted from the brindle bull's hide. The dog opened his huge mouth, clamped it over the bull's neck, and shook his adversary back and forth. The bulls had courage, but they were crossbreeds and not the fighting bulls that will gladly die if they can take their enemy with them. They staggered twenty feet off and faced the dog warily, as though seeking some new way to attack him. He waited, ready for whatever they might do, and when he finally limped away, he did so with his head turned to see if he was being followed. He was not afraid to renew the battle, but he wanted most to be let alone by this ugly pair. In spite of all the rebuffs and even physical violence that he had met up with, however, he could not abandon the driving urge that had sent him forth. He could not live without a master. Somewhere and somehow he must find one. He passed from subtle country into forest where there was only an occasional clearing. When two deer fled before him, he gave half-hearted chase. But his shoulder still hurt, and the battle had wearied him. When the deer outdistanced him, he stopped to eat a few mushrooms that grew on a stump. They were tasteless fare, but they helped still the gnawing in his belly. Near the edge of a pond, he found and ate a fish that had been hurt in battle with a bigger fish, and after that he caught a mouse. Altogether were mere tidbits, and the dog thought wistfully of the delicious meals Johnny Blazer used to prepare for him. Night had fallen when he stopped suddenly his nose tickled by the tantalizing odor of food. Mingled with it was the smell of wood smoke and a man. The dog's nose informed him that there was a creek, and he caught the faintly acid smell of cinders and still that meant a railroad. The dog slowed to a walk and went closer to verify with his eyes what his nose had already told him. There was a creek spanned by a railroad bridge. Beneath the bridge was a small, bright fire over which on a forked stick hung a pot of simmering coffee. Crouched beside the fire was a man, and because there is a difference in the odors of young and old, the dog knew that this was a young man. The dog padded silently through tall, wild grass growing beside the creek. He drooled at the odor of food, but because painful experience had taught him to be very careful in all dealings with men, he did not go any nearer. He licked his chops with a moist tongue and excitement danced in his eyes. How he would love to be near that fire, partaking of the food and the caresses of the young man. But he had better be careful. At the same time that the dog met the farmer, who hurled the block of wood at him, Jeff Tarrant was walking down a dusty road that led into the town of Cressman. Two days past his eighteenth birthday, his face betrayed his youth. Healthy as sunshine, he walked with a spring in his step, and his head held high. His rather loose lips formed a grin that seemed permanently fixed. His blue eyes sparkled, and a shock of curly red hair that needed cutting tumbled on his head. Even if it were not for the pack he carried, he would have commanded a second glance. The pack, made of both canvas and leather, 
and with straps at strategic intervals was huge. It began at Jeff's hip line, extended two inches over the top of his head, and it was bulging. Across it, in black letters as big as the pack could accommodate, was Tarrant Enterprises, LTD. Jeff himself had designed the pack to fit his needs, and he had done the lettering. It described him perfectly, for what nobody except Jeff knew was that Tarrant Enterprises was limited to whatever might be in the pack. He walked cheerfully, for it was a cheerful day, and he gave thanks for the sparsely settled country and the little traveled road on which he found himself. In the first place, this was the only kind of country in which Tarrant Enterprises LTD could flourish. Secondly, the day was made for walking. When Jeff found himself on traveled roads, he was forever being offered rides, and for the sake of both courtesy and good business he always accepted. But there had been no rides today. Descending a hill, Jeff looked down at a junction of two forest valleys, up one of which a train was puffing. He looked at it closely, while the smile in his eyes and that on his mouth seemed to grow a little more pronounced. Railroad tracks meant towns somewhere, and the sort of business Tarrant Enterprises, LTD, could do in towns depended on circumstance. Jeff sniffed deeply, for part of his success depended on an ability to sense what lay ahead. Just as a hunter must sense what is in the offing, now he had wood smoke in his nostrils, and he was not surprised when he rounded an outjutting corner of the hill and saw a farmhouse. Jeff whistled happily as he approached the house and knocked on the front door, and he had the most gracious smile. Tarrant Enterprises LTD could muster up for the woman who opened it. Good afternoon, ma'am. I represent Tarrant... Don't want nothing, she rasped. Never buy nothing from peddlers. Hard work, loneliness, and collapsed dreams had all left their marks, so that she was almost as weather-beaten as the house. But Jeff saw at a glance that the place was neat and clean, and since she did not close the door, he entered, swung the pack from his back, and laid it on a table. Get it off, she scolded. Don't want no dirty pack on my table. Don't want nothing from no peddler, no how. Jeff sniffled hungrily, a delicious incense. The mingled odors of roast chicken and fresh-baked bread blessed his nostrils. He said slowly and with dignity, I am not a peddler, ma'am. I represent Tarrant. Now, look, I just broke my paring knife and I got no time. Ha, ha. Like magic, and seemingly without visible motion, the pack opened. From it, Jeff took a paring knife with a gleaming blade and a shiny black handle. Only seventeen cents, ma'am. Blade of finest steel and hilt of genuine polished wood. Holds its edges and its temper, too. A lifetime knife. She looked at the knife, longing in her eyes. When she glanced again at Jeff, she was not so hostile. Got no money, she admitted. Jeff laughed. I asked for none. Our conversation became so fascinating that I had no chance to explain that I represent Tarrant Enterprises, LTD. We have long recognized the needs of people such as yourself, 
people who prefer the refined quiet of country life to crowds and cities. But country life, as you must know, is not without inconveniences. Our only aim is to bring to the doors of people such as yourself whatever may not be available. Her eyes were suspicious. You mean you're giving me this knife? Not at all, ma'am. Tarrant Enterprises LTD is always willing to barter. Hmm. Is that roast chicken I smell? I ain't trading you no roast chicken for no little knife. Surely one small knife will not fill your needs. Well, I could use some cinnamon sticks. With the same magical ease, Jeff opened his pack and gracefully offered a small parcel of cinnamon sticks. Cinnamon from Salon, he said, at the same time wondering if he did not have cinnamon and tea confused. He went on, The world's only pure cinnamon, made available to Tarrant Enterprises LTD through special sources. My, she was impressed. What else do you have? Jeff said in the same tone that a department store manager would have used. What do you wish, ma'am? She eyed the pack. You wouldn't have some real nice gingham? Certainly. Again, it was though the pack opened itself, and from it Jeff took a partial bolt of red-checked gingham. Her eyes softened. It's real pretty. Feel its texture, Jeff urged. Tarrant Enterprises LTD stocks only the best. Shall we say about six yards? She said doubtfully. Best make it three. Jeff whipped a pair of scissors from his pack and a folding rule from his pocket. He measured and cut three yards of gingham. She fondled it dreamily and compared to the dress she wore. It was elegance itself. Jeff stood expectantly as though everything in the world were available in his pack. Anything else? She eyed the scissors. Can I have them too? Jeff frowned slightly. I don't know, ma'am. They sell for a dollar and ten cents, and Tarrant Enterprises LTD must show a reasonable return. Now, she said as though suddenly remembering, I've got a dollar. And for the rest, might we have bread and chicken? Oh, sure. I'll get it right now. She ran into the kitchen, lingered a few minutes, and returned with a large package, one almost as large, and a small parcel. Jeff smacked his lips. The largest package could contain nothing less than the better part of a roast chicken. The one nearly as large must be a whole loaf of bread, and she pressed all three on him. Some butter for your bread, and here's the dollar. You coming through again? When I do, ma'am, you have an honored place on my list of valued customers. Then you will stop? Most certainly. Be sure now. Ma'am, you have the word of Tarrant Enterprises, LTD. Jeff strolled happily down the road, and he had cheated his customer in no way. Tarrant Enterprises was always ready to barter, for Jeff had long since learned that money must be spent. Now he had a mill as good as any the best inns served, and he had it for half of what he would have paid in cash. But the woman was happy too, and that always made for a fair deal. When he came to where the two valleys made one, Jeff left the road and sought the railroad tracks. Last night he had slept in a haystack, but it was far from an ideal bed. Jeff had not resented the mice, 
for he thought mice were interesting. The hay itself had been old, filled with seeds and thistle, and tonight he wanted a better camp. It was always possible to find one along a railroad. As it always did when he sighted potential customers, Jeff's interest quickened when he saw two men with a hand car beside them working on the tracks. He came abreast of them, two sweating, bewhiskered men who, even on this bright day, managed to look sullen. Good afternoon, gentlemen. They glared at him from beneath bushy eyebrows and looked meaningly at each other. Beat it, peddler. Jeff laughed merrily. What a refreshing sense of humor. Such an intelligent bit of wisdom. You are just the men I hope to meet. I represent Tarrant. Beat it, peddler. Now just think about that. Reconsider if the two raised threatening pickaxes. Are you diff? I was just going, Jeff said hastily. He was not so much as a trifle saddened as he trudged on down the tracks. Even Tarrant Enterprises LTD could not overcome sales resistance that was backed by threatening pickaxes, and nobody won every time. Nobody had to, for just down the road there were sure to be new customers. Jeff came to a still railroad bridge and looked with delighted eyes at the creek flowing beneath it. It was a clear spring-fed stream, and it purled down riffles that filled a deep pool. Beneath the bridge there were weeds, sand, and some big rocks and driftwood. Scrambling down the embankment, Jeff sighed at the sheer luxury of such a place. It had everything anybody needed. Carefully, he laid the pack down, put his food parcels in the shade, and from his own personal compartment of the pack, he took a towel, a washcloth, and a bar of soap, a toothbrush, and a comb. Taking off his clothes, he plunged into the pool and swam across. After five minutes, he waded out, soaped himself from head to toe, and rinsed in the pool. He was thus engaged when the hand car rattled over the bridge. Jeff dried himself, dressed, and combed some order into the chaos of his hair. For a while, he was satisfied to lay in the sun, happy just to dream. Left without parents when a young child, he had been brought up in an orphanage, which he had voluntarily left when he was fourteen and a half. He had worked for a farmer, for a livery stable, which was in the process of becoming converted to a garage, for a pipeline crew, and for others, long enough to convince himself that there is no special virtue in, and not much to be gained through hard work alone. For the past two and a half years, he had been owner, manager, and entire working force of Tarrant Enterprises, LTD. That, by train, car, horse, conveyance, and on foot, had taken him to both coasts and both borders. He spent his summers in the north and his winters in the south, and the tidy roll of bills sewed in an inside pocket was proof that hard work is fine and wonderful, if combined with initiative and intelligence. It was a happy life, one he liked, and though he thought he might take root sometime, he was not ready to do it yet. Not until dusk brought the first hint of evening chill did Jeff gather wood and build a fire. He built it close enough to a big boulder so that the rock surface would reflect heat, but far enough away so that it would not be too hot. He lingered beside the pool, listening to the night noises. Out in the forest a whippoorwill began its eerie cry, and a sleepy bird twittered from its roost. 
The purling riffles splashed and called, and a breeze set the forest to sighing. Only a stone rolling down the embankment seemed to be out of tune. Jeff's fire cast weird shadows, and the snapping of a burning wood added its own notes to the symphony of night. Jeff turned from the stream toward his fire and confronted the two men whom he had met along the railroad. Now he knew why that stone had rolled. Except for this one small sound, they had come silently, and in the firelight they seemed even more unkept than they had appeared in the full light of day. They were big men, all muscle, and they carried pick handles in their brawny fist. Jeff felt a cold chill ripple down his spine, for it looked as though the least Tarrant Enterprises LTD was about to lose was its entire capital stock. He tried to take command of the situation. Good evening, gentlemen. I thought you'd be back. I was sure you are an intelligent, one of the men said, taking buff. The two parted to come at Jeff from both sides. He looked longingly at a club lying near the fire, and as though he had read Jeff's mind, the man called Buff stood on the club. Jeff backed slowly toward the water. He might lose the pack, but he intended to keep his money, and he had no intention of letting anyone work him over with the pick handle. As he retreated, he felt with his feet for rocks, clubs, anything at all, with which to fight back. The two men advanced slowly, and Jeff risked a backward glance to see himself within three paces of the water. There was only sand beneath his feet. At exactly that moment, the dog appeared. He came slowly, with dignity, but uncertainty, because he was not sure of a welcome. Neither was he able to restrain himself any longer. For more than half an hour, he had hidden in the grass, studying and entranced by Jeff. Now he had to find out whether he was acceptable. He halted four feet away, not caring to go any closer until he was sure. Seeing him, Jeff saw his own salvation. He snapped his fingers and said, Well, where have you been keeping yourself? The dog sighed ecstatically. For so very long he had sought someone, and now at last he had found him. He came forward to brush his shaggy back against Jeff's thighs, and he looked up at the two men. Huge, a wild and salvage-appearing thing, even in the full light of the day, he was even more so by the fire's dancing glow. His eyes sparkled. His pendulous jaws seemed taut and strained, and though he regarded the two men with suspicion only, neither could know that. They backed. Jeff patted the big dog's head and said amiably, Just my dog, just my little old dog. I need some help while I attend to the far-flung business of Tarrant Enterprises, LTD. His tone became slightly reproachful, and he said to the dog, Here, here, don't bite them now. The two men scrambled up the embankment and disappeared. End of chapter one. Recording by Kristen Lewis, Houston, Texas.